you have your Bibles, please open them to John chapter 14. Today we'll be looking at verses 15 through 31 as we continue on in our series looking at Jesus' farewell discourse, true words for troubled souls. The words are also printed for you in the bulletin on pages 5 and 6. John chapter 14, starting in verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let your hearts not be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. You may be seated, and as we do, let us go together to the Lord, asking for his Spirit's help. As we understand his word. Father God, we do thank you for the promise that you have not left us as orphans. We have your spirit with us, dwelling in us. Today, tomorrow, for all eternity. May that be a great source of comfort to our souls as it was for your disciples here. May your spirit proclaim your truth through me. May it fall upon ears ready to hear your word, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. What words do you find comforting when you think about departures? Or what promises do you latch onto when someone you love leaves, particularly when they leave without the prospect of a reunion? Generally, in such scenarios, words of memory or sentiment are typically offered. We see this most often in the worlds of movies and TV shows. Take, for example, the ending scene in the classic 1982 movie E.T., Extraterrestrial, where if you remember that little green alien who's a little bit cute but also a lot bit scary, um, as he prepares to get on his ship, takes his very large, again, creepy-looking finger that's glowing and touches his dear friend Elliot's forehead, and his parting words are right here. That was a really bad E.T. impersonation. I apologize. But he's suggesting that their bond of friendship that they have formed over, I forget if it's weeks or days together, will live on in Eliot's memory right here. 
Or, if you're not familiar with that one, take the 1990 animated film Tarzan, where the phrase, and really good song, if I might add, you'll be in my heart, is repeated throughout. These are the words of sentiment. Love and affection will overcome any separation or circumstance. They will sustain you until you meet again. And while memory and sentiment can be powerful and at times helpful words in the face of partings, we should be incredibly thankful that that's not what Jesus gives his disciples here in John 14. His words to his troubled, anxious disciples are far better, far more encouraging and more comforting than you'll be in my heart or right here. For those types of words would not have done much help for these disciples in the hours, the days, the weeks, the months, and the years ahead. Such words would likely have faded as persecution dialed up, as faith crisis settled in. The disciples would need much better words than mere recollection, remember the good times, or affection, which is exactly what Jesus is going to provide them. Here in John 14, verses 15 through 31, Jesus gives words of certain promise. When he leaves, and he is leaving, he is going to send help. And not just any help. This help will be tangible. It will be personal. It will actually be even better than what they are currently enjoying in the presence of Jesus, as impossible as that might be for us and even the disciples to fathom. Because the Holy Spirit is the promise. He is coming, and he will be the greatest comfort that these disciples could find. The greatest comfort that we will find. In these words from the Apostle John, we find the person and the work of the Holy Spirit is the assurance of God's help and our union with Christ. The person and the work of the Holy Spirit is the assurance of God's help and our union with Christ. The outline of the Spirit's person and work is there for you. Three points, the Spirit of truth, the Spirit who transforms, and the Spirit as teacher. And may God's Spirit himself use these words to instruct, to comfort, and to encourage our, encourage our hearts today, whether they be troubled or filled with joy or somewhere in between. We start where Jesus does, with the spirit of truth. Right after where we left off last week, where Jesus invites his disciples to ask the Father of anything in my name, and I will give it to you, Jesus actually says, but I'm going to go first. I'm going to ask the Father to give you something. Look at what he says, and I will ask the Father that he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth. Jesus knows as he's ready to depart what his disciples are going to need in his absence. They think they need Jesus to stick around. Are you sure you have to go? Isn't there any other way for you to stay with us? They think it'd be better for him and for them if he would just hold off on his plans of departing. Maybe a day, maybe a week, maybe longer. Because they think when he leaves, they're going to be abandoned. And again, put yourself in the disciples' shoes. They've left everything to follow him over the past three years. Him leaving is a terrifying reality facing them. 
But once again, Jesus shows himself not only to be a good teacher, but a good shepherd. He promises his weak, troubled, anxious flock that he's going to give them the one thing they need, another helper. Both those words, another helper, are important. Another is, is, not, is not used in terms of something foreign or something altogether unknown. Rather, it points to something of the same kind. All analogies fall short, but, but Tim and I are another pastor. We are both the same office. We're, we're different in terms of our personalities, but we're of the same kind, pastor. Again, all analogies fall short, but that's kind of like what Jesus is saying when he says another helper. He's not someone unknown to you. And that idea of a helper emphasizes one who encourages, one who counsels, one who comforts. And for the disciples, the reality is they're probably sitting there going, we already have a helper, it's you. Because for the last three years, they have benefited from the counsel, comfort, and encouragement of Jesus Christ in the flesh, walking with them day after day. Even as they're sitting likely around the table, they're, being re they're receiving the benefits of him being their helper. One commentator writes it this way, virtually everything that has been said about the Holy Spirit has been said elsewhere in the gospel about Jesus. So when he promises another helper, he's promising more of what the disciples have been experiencing over the past three years. Him leaving is not going to leave them deprived, but it will actually leave them supplied. Because Jesus says this spirit will be with you forever. Unlike Jesus, this helper is not going to depart from them. Unlike Jesus, this spirit's actually going to take up residence within them. He says, for he dwells with you and will be in you. We'll see more of that point in our second point. And it is precisely because Jesus says this helper, or one like me, will be in you, that he can make the audacious claim that he's going to make in John 16, where he says, it's actually to your advantage that I'm going. Or even what he says here, if you understood this, you would rejoice that I'm leaving. Because the reality is another helper was reason to rejoice, reason to delight, not reason for sorrow and for gloom. A helper like Christ would come to these disciples to continue the ministry of Christ in a greater and even more intimate way than they had experienced over the past three years. And Jesus adds another caveat, this helper, this another, is also called the spirit of truth. Ours is a day, sadly, where truth is believed to be fluid, relative, altogether undefinable. It is an ever-moving target with zero clarity. And actually, this makes complete sense in what Jesus says here in verse 17, because the spirit of truth kind of serves as this line of demarcation between the world and the true disciples of Jesus Christ. The world hates this spirit of truth. The disciples love him. The world does not know this spirit of truth. The disciples know him intimately, deeply. 
the world cannot receive this spirit of truth. But the disciples have him. Just as Jesus promised, this spirit with them and in them. And because he is the spirit of truth, everything that he does as helper and as comforter is of the truth. And this shouldn't be surprising. Because how could the spirit sent by the father who is true, in the name of the son who is also true, not be a spirit of truth? This is great encouragement for us. It means his counsel is true. His comfort that he brings is true. His intercession on our behalf before the throne of grace is true. His advocacy on our behalf before the throne of grace is true. And those ideas of advocacy and intercession are the critical parts of the help that he provides. They're the unseen things that we reap the blessings of. You see it in places like Romans 8.26 where Paul says the spirit himself pleads, intercedes for us with groaning too deep for words. These groanings on behalf of God's people, weak, at times wayward, anxious, are true. And his pleadings of the merits of Christ on our behalf are equally so. And so because this spirit is the helper, the spirit of truth, the disciples could and would learn to lean on him just as confidently, just as helplessly as they leaned on their Savior who was with them at this very moment. Because the truth is, who did Jesus lean on for his confidence, for his strength? for his counsel, for his comfort, and for his encouragement over the course of his three years. It's on the spirit of truth. The helper. Jesus lived by this spirit of truth. In Hebrews 9.14, we find out that Jesus offered himself up by this spirit of truth. And three days after this discourse, he would rise again to new life by the power of this spirit of truth. So says Romans chapter 1. I am not a lawyer, but I've watched some on TV. And before, from what I've watched, before, and TV's true, before and in the middle of the courtroom, what are lawyers doing? They're always giving counsel to their clients. It's their job as legal advocates, as counselors. They whisper it. They write it on those notepads that they have that look real professional. They're giving it non-verbally with some looks across the table. They're encouraging their clients to do the right thing, to say the right thing in the eyes of the law. The ministry of the Spirit is similar, only, and sorry to offend my lawyer friends, his counsel's true. Always true. Sorry, lawyers, you always get the brunt of the jokes. My brother-in-law is a lawyer, so I'll probably take up this, this with him later. But Sinclair Ferguson, on, on this point about the counsel that the Holy Spirit gives, he writes this. This is the Spirit's advice to us. This is his counsel, whispering it to you. Keep your eyes fixed on Christ. See how wonderful he is. 
Trust him. Live for him. Don't let him down. Follow him. Serve him with all your life. And then when we fail, he pleads Christ for us. And points us once again to the mercy and the grace that is offered at the throne of grace. And this is just a glimpse of the truth-saturated, helpful words that the Spirit speaks through his written word. So then begs the question for us, are you listening to his counsel? Are you asking for his help day after day? Are you trusting his word? Are you leaning on him just as your Savior leaned on him each and every day? The spirit of truth is God's gracious gift to his people. May we rejoice in him and be strengthened by the help that he promises to bring us as another helper, the spirit of truth. From here we see that Jesus shifts then to the spirit who transforms. This is another aspect of the spirit's work. It is to make us or make God's dwelling within his people. Or to put it more crassly, the Spirit works to transform idolatrous temples into temples of the living God. This is what Paul implies in 1 Corinthians 6, 19, when he warns the Corinthian church, a very wayward and confused church, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? And Jesus points to that work of transformation here in verse 23. Look at it with me. He says, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. See that last phrase, and make our home with him. Jesus has already used that word home in this farewell discourse. We covered it last week in verse 2. In my Father's house are many rooms, homes dwelling places. That's what both of those words literally mean, dwelling places. So Jesus says, I'm going back to the Father to prepare a dwelling place for you there. And that was disorienting. That was alarming. That was a terrifying reality for the disciples. And yet it's good news for them because of what Jesus has just said. Because at the same time, he's sending his Holy Spirit to do a work of preparation in them. To make them holy dwelling places. He's preparing them for the triune God to come and dwell within them. His point doesn't fit my alliteration. I didn't simply want to steal it, though we preachers like to say it's borrowing. But Sinclair Ferguson, about on this point, calls the Holy Spirit the homemaker. I really like that picture. He says a homemaker, well, first, before that, Jesus is giving credit to a homemaker as a dignified and a valuable commodity. So if you are a homemaker, be encouraged this morning. But a homemaker is one who transforms a house into a home and creates a family atmosphere there. This is what the Spirit is doing within God's people. He's bringing home to them and in them. For troubled, fearful, anxious disciples, overwhelmed by the thought of abandonment, Jesus says, no, no, you're not going to be abandoned. The Spirit's coming, and he's bringing home. 
Home means intimacy. It means being known. It means being loved. It means comfort and delight. And Jesus is promising all these things in the coming of his Holy Spirit. Never will they fear abandonment because the Spirit will be there. Never will they be forgotten because the Spirit is dwelling in them. Never will their fear of being orphaned come true. They will have the intimacy of the Father and the Son dwelling in them by the power and the person of the Holy Spirit. Truth be told, I'm not sure how well we fathom this reality. Because it should bring us, I don't even know how to measure it, an unmeasurable amount of comfort. Now for the disciples, it makes no sense to them. Because they don't have the Spirit. He hadn't come yet. He's being promised to come. We, on the other hand, have the Spirit's testimony in Scripture. We have the truth confirmed to us that the very same God who Solomon declared at the dedication of the temple, but will God indeed dwell on earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I built. This same God is now being promised by Jesus to come and make his home in weak, doubting, troubled, desperate disciples like you and me. And if that's not good enough, it's a foretaste of that day to come, which the Apostle John also wrote about in Revelation 21, with those words that many of us run to on our darkest and most troubling days. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Friends, our triune God has started that work, that project within each and every one who trusts in Jesus Christ for salvation. To us, he has poured out his spirit, who at this moment is transforming us into dwelling places for the triune God. This should comfort us. This should humble us. Weak, finite people like us being made homes where God's spirit will dwell. And it should also stir within us deep affections of love for our triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But before we leave this point, we must also note the means by which the spirit does this transforming work. And Jesus offers the means in verse 21 and the first half of verse 23. He says, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him. Love and obedience fuels this work of transformation. And let me be blunt, it doesn't mean the work will be easy. It's been almost two years since our family moved into our new home. And while we have done some work into it, there is still a lot of homemaking that we are still in the process of doing or dreaming of doing. Our walls still remain primarily empty. We need upgrades in various rooms. We need some coats of new paint and even touch-up paint already. Just last month, we finally got the girls' room to be more of a comfortable room with some shelves and some curtains that we are still waiting to be delivered. 
The work of homemaking takes time, takes energy, takes sacrifice, and more. It's a day-by-day, project-by-project work, slowly getting towards that day of completion. Brothers and sisters, that's an analogy of the work the Spirit is doing in transforming you and I today. Not to be a Debbie Downer, but it's going to be lifelong and it's going to be hard. It will be painful at some times to make us dwelling places for God's Spirit. Because in order to do that, the Spirit has to do what we're going to sing of in our last hymn. He has to take away the love of sinning. And we love sin. As much as we think we don't. If the Father and the Son are going to come and make their home here, they're going to need to do a little bit more than touching up some paint. There's going to be some demolition. There's going to be some walls getting knocked down. There's going to be some changing of the blueprints that we've made. There's going to be some death to the things that we love, but the things that in our loving are actually keeping us from loving our triune God. And if you don't believe me, believe the words of the Spirit in places like Romans 8 and Galatians 5. Where walking by the Spirit means putting to death the things of the flesh. And the trials and the sufferings that we face are a part of that project. They are teaching us, if nothing else, to hate our sin and to put it to death. And at the same time, they're driving us to lean on, to walk in. And to trust in the Spirit to do that work He's promised and started to do within us. And we have the blessing of knowing that as we do that, we will know the intimacy of our triune God all the more. We will experience deeper fellowship with Him as He makes us His dwelling place. We will find Him to be at home with us. call then is for us to submit ourselves to his work ask him to deepen within us a love for him that is displayed in our obedience and ask him plead with him to continue his transforming work in us no matter how painful it may be at times to make us more like christ the true temple of the living god in whose image he is making us by his power Finally, then we get to Jesus' final point, Jesus, the Spirit as teacher. And now this point will be picked up again in John chapter 16, so it may not be as thorough as we might expect. But by taking up residence within the disciples, Jesus says the Spirit is going to deepen their understanding and their knowledge of Christ. Look at verse 26. But the helper of the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Yes, the disciples are about to lose their teacher. They would no longer be able to ask him those ridiculous questions that often leave us going, what? They would no longer have him nearby to correct their wrong assumptions to squash their selfish ambitions or to rebuke their ignorant declarations. But in his place, they would have the indwelling Holy Spirit who's going to only improve their understanding 
of who he is. He will work not from the outside in, which is what teachers are always trying to do, but instead he's going to work from the inside out. He will fine-tune all the things that they've heard, all the things that they've seen, all the things that they have observed and experienced as they walked with Jesus. On this point, D.A. Carson writes, The Spirit's ministry in this respect was not to bring qualitatively new revelation, but to complete or to fill out the revelation Jesus brought by himself. Everything about Jesus, the disciples were going to know better because of the Holy Spirit. His words, his deeds, his teaching, his promises, the implications of them all, and so much more. You can almost picture when the Spirit does arrive, the, the disciples may be gathered around laughing at themselves as they think back to moments like these. Of How did we miss that one? Can't believe I said that. Peter, you're such an idiot. And if we have any doubts about the benefits or the reality of this truth, that the Spirit would help them understand and know Christ better, we have the book of Acts. How is it that these same fearful, anxious, ignorant, and weak, and at times stupid men, would end up being faithful witnesses of Jesus Christ in Jerusalem, in all Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth? It is because of this promise Jesus makes on the eve of his crucifixion. The Holy Spirit is coming to help you. Take, for example, Acts 4, verse 13, where Luke writes about the enemies of the, of the apostles. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Or in Acts chapter 5, Verse 32, where the apostles together, almost in unison, proclaim, in the face of the very people who crucified Jesus, God exalted Jesus at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. We are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. Right there is all the proof that we need that this is what the Spirit is doing within us. He's helping us to understand Jesus better, to know his revelation all the more, and to be able to proclaim it. What a comfort it is for us. So are you learning from the Holy Spirit? Are you allowing him to teach you and to instruct you as you open up the word of God, hopefully day by day? Are you asking him to give you a deeper understanding of his work and the truths about Jesus Christ, of the goodness of God, as we gather weekly here in the company of God's people? Are you looking to him to bring you peace and rest from all your anxieties and your troubles through his instruction, through a deeper knowledge of Jesus and what he's done? For in verse 27, when Jesus promises peace, it is not abstracted from the Spirit's instruction. It goes without saying that we live in a world void of peace, very much like the world the disciples lived in. And any peace that exists, especially on the geopolitical stage, is ultimately a product of the sword, which we can be thankful for to a degree. But peace on earth is... is given and then easily removed. 
it is more wished than a known reality. That's not the case with the peace that Jesus gives through his spirit. Because it is nothing less than the peace that characterizes his good and perfect kingdom, which Bruce gave us a glimpse of at the end of Isaiah 32. It is a peace that ultimately flows from Jesus' death, where he paid the price for our sin and conquered that ruler of this world who was coming. It is the peace that is secured in his resurrection, the first fruits of all who united to him by faith, to all who have the Spirit of God dwelling in them. Troubled disciples can gain peace as they grow deeper and deeper in their understanding of God, what he's done, of Christ, and who he is. And such peace enables them, enables us to endure some of the most difficult tribulations, the hardest of trials, even the deepest of sorrows. It is the peace found in understanding how our triune God is present with us, truly and personally, by his spirit, though weak and feeble and fearful and troubled we may be. So as we conclude... Maybe you're wondering, maybe you're not. How do I apply this passage today? Hopefully there has been some points to make you think and apply. But there's two. And they're the words of Jesus. Love and believe. And again, I could go to Romans 8 or Galatians 5 when it comes to application, calling calling explicitly us to walk by the Spirit. But I think Jesus' points of love and believe are his application for the disciples then and for us now. We see love in verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. This may sound cliche or simplistic, but it isn't. The application is love God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And demonstrate your love by obedience to him. This is not a call to legalism. It's a call to holiness. Seek to love God by faithfully obeying his words, even the parts that are hard, whether personally or socially. And if you find your love is waning, examine your obedience. A disciple should not expect to hold a fervent love for God void of a desire to obey him. And then ask for the Spirit's help. That's what he's here for. Plead with him for a deeper love and a deeper affection and a deeper desire to obey. He's been given to you for that purpose. You're not orphans. And then second, believe. Jesus says in verse 29, And now I have told you before it takes place so that when it does, you may believe. Trust in the presence and the work of the Holy Spirit. Stand firm on the truth that the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, the hope of glory is in you and will be with you. Allow the reality of your union to God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, through the Holy Spirit to relieve you of your troubles, of your fear, of your worry. Ask Him to conform you And to confirm in you the truth. To transform you into the image of Christ. To teach you more and more about him.
The person and work of the Holy Spirit is the assurance of God's help and our union with Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Father God, we give you praise and thanks for your spirit. Holy Spirit, we acknowledge that we are often living ignorant to your presence, to your work in us. Forgive us. But thank you that you are the spirit of truth, counseling us in truth, that you are the spirit who is transforming us into the image of our Savior. You are the spirit who even at right now is teaching us. Continue that work in us. May we grow in our love for you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and in our obedience to you. May we rest in you all the more. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.